Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Finance the Dawn podcast. It's your boy, Michael. It's been a bit, hasn't it? It's been, oh gosh, weeks, weeks uh, since the last episode. And I am so happy to be finally doing another episode again. And a lot has changed. Uh, You could probably, obviously, if you saw last night, Luka Doncic with 1.8 seconds left, hits a game winner. Uh, a dagger to take out the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, today's episode's not going to be a, a lot about the Dallas Mavericks, obviously. Um, I think that there's a lot more important things going on in the world. Uh, in today's episode, we are talking about uh, something that's a little bit more uh, nuanced than the game of basketball, I guess you could say. And um, that's the other part of this podcast, is talking about cryptocurrency. Now, in, in today's episode, I want to talk about some, what I guess you could call the non-sequitur arguments that are arising, especially in this kind of, I don't know what you could call it, a fear stage that the market is in right now. And I also wanted to kind of speak on, you know, some of the factors that you have coming out now that people are talking about. Some things that, you know, I've spoken about on my Twitter page, at Polv3R, if you want to check out the Twitter page there. But, welcome to Finance the Dawn, here we go. You've probably been looking at the Bitcoin market, or you've been looking at crypto, you might be in it already, you might know people, that are in it right now. And, you know, the people that have been there since the beginning, those that, you know, saw the vision at first, those who, those that were lucky enough to be born, you know, prior in the 90s, maybe in the 80s, 70s, whatever, and they knew about cryptographic technology, its applications that it could create in terms of encrypting messaging nodes, ledgers, um, and creating uh, a technological innovation that would allow networks to supersede energy production to a point that they could capture it in sort of a cloud space. And the people that have gotten into the game, those at least that got on early on, it took probably years of research um, before anyone seriously sat down and thought, you know, this is a great investment. It's not an ETF, it's not a bond, it's not a yield. It is literally a network investment that literally takes the concept of Facebook as an example and implodes it into an idea that is so much greater than just you reaching out to your grandmother or trying to reach out to a distant cousin or trying to create a friend group, right? What they decided, or what really Satoshi Nakamoto decided in 2007, probably a little bit earlier, all the way to 2008, is that there is an entire ecosystem of wealth that was fundamentally jarred off from much of the free world. And that is simply because central banks had a consolidation of, if you've probably heard this term, fiat currency. Now, fiat currency is kind of a loose term that's thrown around by those plebs or those Lambo-driven people, Um, you know, a lot of people that joined the crypto wave, especially after, you could really see after 2016 when the market, you know, it was hitting really a challenge point to the NASDAQ and the S&P 500, uh, some of the largest markets in the entire world that quite literally are heavily leveraged against much the of the East, much of China, London's exchanges, and even of the foreign exchange market. And what you see in these markets is an overabundance of wealth that specifically in foreign exchanges over the last 10 years 
and really over the last 20 if you look at the trend lines, you see that these markets did not fundamentally go through a natural swing. They very much were reactionary to timed events. You know, there wasn't a grassroots movement involved. This was just heavy hitters, whales, your Jim Cramers, your Warren Buffetts of the world. Um, you know, maybe not somebody who has $50 billion, but people that had, you know, just enough money in themselves to get a, if they really played the market right, they could get an 80% swing, they could get even more, that they could take entire pots of money, throw it into uh, a pair, and then just ride the wave because they know that the currency itself is not going to fall because the banks won't let it. And so this this debate didn't really start until a man that we all know uh, who was president of the United States at one point, Donald Trump, uh, he campaigned entirely on this concept, well not entirely, but partially I guess you could say, in terms of his economic policy, that uh, currencies were being manipulated, that there were people involved in these, in these foreign exchanges, in these central banks, that were in essence complicit to the ongoing problems going on in not only the global economy, but things that were hitting domestic markets pretty hard. And, you know, not many people were taking, I guess, the president at that time seriously. I mean, for obvious reasons, it's really hard to take someone of his character rather seriously. And I think that there was a, there was really a looking at the market, I think, in at least 2016, you could really see, at least in the crypto market in terms of its trends, that what you really see in those times is a market that is both A, trying to find its lynch, B, really trying to discover uh, what is its levels in terms of grassroots investors. Now, what do I be mean in terms of grassroots investors? So, a grassroots investor is not a person with $100 million who is going out and trying to recruit people to join on their cause in terms of investing in the market. That is not a grassroots investor. A grassroots investor in of itself is a person that is in your mom-pop shop, probably a business owner, maybe somebody who doesn't own a business, maybe it's somebody just trying to be an entrepreneur, maybe it's someone that's just a college student getting out of college you know, in the next month who really wants to take whatever money they have left uh, and to put it into the market one way or another, hit it big, hit a home run. Now, the grassroots investor itself is rather... Um, I guess the best term that you could give microcosmed into their ideals. And no matter what, they cannot really extend their capital, their energy production in too many avenues, right? They have to really focus on what they want to do. And so what you have seen in the last, I would say, 12 years even, especially since the 08 market crash, especially since uh, the the ramifications that came for Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan Chase, what you see amongst all of these central banks and all of these banks that do, in essence, have domestic alliances with each other in which they are not trying to step on each other's toes because they know not only how important their network is, but they know exactly that their weight in the markets pull way much more than any other service industry or any other body of government. And they understand that. They understand 100% how much power they have not only over the United States government, how much power they have over the United Nations, how much power they have in not only pushing energy production globally, but to also create the infrastructures, to also create the, the peoples that put are put into those positions, but to also the fact that they have way more superseded power than the powers that put them in that place. And this isn't to say that in and of itself that the concept of a bank in its form is derogatory towards a domestic market. I don't think that's the case. I think that 
the central banks did, in essence, what was the smarter financial move for them. They decided many years ago that it is so much easier for them to control the markets if they simply do not compete against each other. Their entire ideal was... We need to network ourselves so if there comes a point where any of us falls out, that we are able to bail each other out one way or another. And the thing is, is that they have the government, and they've known that. 1984, when the Illinois, or the Continental Illinois Bank, if I remember correctly, when they fell out, Ronald Reagan immediately signed in that they were going to be bailed out. The FDIC insured every account on their ledger. But the thing is, is that as those billions of dollars were wasted away, it didn't just come off of the backs of the American taxpayer. It came off of the back of future generations. And the thing is, is that with fiat currency, it, it begs a lot of suggestions, right? Because wages didn't increase. The overall productivity of life didn't increase. Energy production per person did not increase, Right? Many scales of the global economy didn't change even while the central banks, the very tenants of your currencies, were failing. And no one, no one in their right mind stood up and said, what the hell is going on here? You know, and I, in some ways, Satoshi Nakamoto did in 2008, right? He says that the peer-to-peer -peer system in his white paper is the future that we must go in because the central banks have fundamentally shown that their control of fiat currency is just in a volatile state. They have no conception over the power and gravity and weight of their power. They do not understand in any capacity that they have every control and mechanism to pop every bubble in the market but to also simultaneously create them. They knew for a fact, the banks did, that they could create leverages in the market and create deficits in the same way, but they would use the deficits as negative cash flows to pay off debts and then use the bubbles to cash out, right? Because they know in a bubble that the grassroots will follow. They know that the bond paw shops will follow because they see it in essence as well as college students, as well as entrepreneurs, that it's easy, quick, fast money. And that's what everyone's searching for, right? They're searching for the 20% the gain, the 30% gain, the life-changing experience, right? They're wanting to trap people into those bubbles because they know if a person is caught in that bubble, then once it pops, there is no way out. And here's the thing, banks themselves are not ignorant of time and space. They understand exactly not only when they need in, but when they need to get out. They coordinate, in essence, this because they have the overall capital to do so. And the thing is, is, you know, you see a lot of this debate, right? You know, and I get this, you have people that defend the central banks. They, it's not that they, you know don't want to cash out in a certain amount of time, but it is just that they have to go through regulatory bodies to do so. People will say that, right? And the one thing that I would just heed to people who defend that position is do you really, really think that the same banks that have been complicit to probably into right now the tens of billion dollars, tens of billions of dollars of fraud that has not only happened probably this year, probably last year, probably the last 10 years, maybe the last 30 to 40. We don't exactly know, right? Because this is money that they have lost over time. Black markets, the dark web have now exemplified the backdoor capabilities that people can literally tunnel in to these central bank databases and extract all of the information that they have access to. And these banks themselves have to cover all of those losses. Or someone has to, right? <laughs> like, it can't just come out of thin air. They can't just report a massive loss on the ledger. Or it could create tax implications. Or it could create problems in the future for them.
And I think that the overall premise that a lot of people are not wanting to tackle, I guess is the word, or not wanting to, you know, succumb to, it's that the Pinks have so much power controlling energy production. And what I mean by that, and, and at least comparison to Bitcoin, right? And I mean this in comparison to Bitcoin. That energy production itself by central banks are all about units in time, right? Because fiat, the very word of fiat, is an illusion. It's an illusion that in right now, as soon as I take my X dollar, it will provide me X exchange at the current market value. Which is, I'm just going to throw this out here, folks. That is a total bullshit concept for every amount of work you do in your life. That is a total bullshit. To say that you, as an individual, get no increase of your energy production over a period of time over the last 40 years. Not only do you not get that. But you also don't get better benefits. You have gotten regressively worse ones. You not only didn't get a growing network. You got a regressed one. You not only didn't get a better attainable life. But you have seen a regression of it. Not only in the domestic market but globally. So you're telling me that this illusionary trust. Is somehow better than the production that could come from a non-governing body network. You know, I don't know if many people realize this, but Facebook was in essence the tributary to what rose out of the blockchain technology. Never before in the history of the planet did we have a mechanism that allowed us to peer to the entire world and meet other people on the other side of the globe to not only create and develop products, but to also to create and develop art, space, and develop time with other people, relationships, maybe family members that you didn't know you had. And the central banks acted in, in a lot of ways that Facebook did, right? Facebook has been under fire, you know, damn, for you think about it since really the second term of, of Barack Obama in the United States. What you see is that Facebook got in so much trouble over the years for becoming a governing body for becoming a moderator of the most priceless possession known to the free world, and that is your ability to speak, to convey your message, to convey what you mean, what you say, your emotions. Right? This is, this is the fundamental problem of the network in and of itself for Facebook and the central banks and the government. Is that they believe that in essence because they are a governing body. Because they are a group of very powerful people with heavy interests into investments, into production, infrastructure. That they believe that simply because they have been able to attain all of the benefits of fiat currency. That now they are the ones with some sort of control over the market. And, and in truth, and this is the one thing that I don't think a lot of billionaires want to admit to, is they killed grassroots movements. They killed them. Because every single one of them was a threat. It was a threat to their network. And you see, Bitcoin and Facebook are so asimilar. In that, and this also creates, in essence, is the differences between the two. What makes them so similar is that you can take the product itself, 
transfer it across a network globally. With even people you've never met face to face. You don't even know what they look like. You don't even have to completely know them. But you can engage with them without necessarily any sort of purview. Now, this has changed, obviously, with Facebook. Facebook has instituted a lot of governmental policies. They have had to bend to other governments in terms of how their network is accessed within the network of any given country. Um, they've had to go before, um, or at least Mark Zuckerberg has, has had to go before the United States Congress and the Senate and simply tell them, well, uh, sorry, uh, Senator of the United States, I don't believe that we take information and distribute it, right? Or that, I'm sorry, Congressman, but we don't, um, we don't disseminate and share information. Or our network is secure. Yada, yada, yada. Right. That's Facebook's position. <laughs> you know, that's that's also Twitter's position. That is also all the proprietaries of those two networks. That is Reddit's position. But you see... And this is the problem. Is that they treat their governing bodies exactly the same way that central banks treat fiat. They view it as something that is tangible. When it is exactly the opposite. It's because they created tangibility out of their terms and conditions, their policies, their right to govern their networks. All of those things, right? It is as if these bodies are more self-replications of the West. And less about trying to prevail on the ideals that the mainnet internet has fought for for the last 30 years. And the thing, the contrasting thing that you see with Bitcoin is that it has so many problems with it. And this is, this is where I'm going to kind of go into some of the problems. But I also don't see these as such outweighing that somehow the illusion, the trust of fiat is somehow better. Because it isn't. It is in no way fundamentally better. And I think that this is where we are heading for a collision course. I was reading an article uh, by Zero Hedge, I believe, um, not too long ago, that is it it's talking about the um, essence of the black swan, right? That black swan investors are essentially people who, if you've heard of Black Monday, um, the, the 90s dot-com bubble bust, if you will. And black swans are essentially people that came in to these markets and they are not your grassroots investors that were trying to ride the wave. They are the people who bought the bottoms of the market and made the product something new, right? They took a part of a domestic market, maybe reached it globally, maybe consolidated its global impact, and they took every retainable asset and turned it into some new mechanism. Now, Bitcoin, since 2008, has met tons of problems. You know, you, you have your bankers very much in the beginning that were like, ah, it's a speculative asset, too volatile. It's, a, it's an MSB, we don't really want to touch it. That was the argument back then. And, you know, as the years went on, as Bitcoin went through its ebbs and woes, you know, especially in the beginning, it was, it was a lot about, well, we don't know who Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto is. Is it one person? Is it a group? Oh, speculation. Right, and you also had the the people that were worried about scaling, especially you saw that you know from 2012 to like 2015, right? That that debate really ended in there. But 
you know, you had people saying, oh, the block sizes are getting way too big, you know, and ASIC miners are here and AMP miners are here. You know, what are we going to do? Is, is, the, is the direct production of our, our supply going to flow through the rich? Are we not going to be able to, to, you know, create wealth and energy production out of this if only so few people are going to be able to create it? And that was bullshit. See, the debate for Bitcoin has has kind of gone off the rails. It hasn't tried to focus the arguments. There has not been a debate about what are the root causes of Bitcoin? What will be the innate advantages of Bitcoin in the future? What are some of the deficits that we can totally acknowledge and also understand that these deficits are really what create positivity in the Bitcoin market? Right? Those debates aren't happening. Because what I see in the very least, and I, I also don't doubt other people see this, is that, and this is just a part of the wave of Reddit, this is part of the wave of Twitter, in that you have a lot of people who want to be a troll, you have a lot of people who want to be in this movement for the right reasons, who want to say their opinions, and then you have people who were in this from the beginning, who made tons of money at this point, and... They are also in this position of, well, I've been saying fiat currency sucks for so long, you know. My pair that actually shows how much wealth I have in this domestic market is growing exponentially. But the one thing I don't want to admit, and I'm saying this in the perspective of these maximalists, by the way, what they're not telling people is like, oh shit, I'm a millionaire now. Oh, and also, I don't think that this is really going to be worth it in the next five years. That's what they're telling people. That's what they don't want to say. And the th- and the funny thing to me about that is, you know, the, and this is us trying to get back to the whole root argument of Bitcoin. What you see more than anything is that the pair is the most important aspect of Bitcoin. It's not... In, in, in terms of legibility, it's not paired uh, globally against, let's just say, bananas, right? I And yes, I'm talking about the legit, you know, banana that you peel apart and eat. The one kind of monkey's like, right? It's not paired against some commodity. It's not paired against some asset in the world. If you think... The dollar bills an asset. You're kidding yourself. It's throwaway money. It's monopoly money. And I know that's gonna piss off, you know, some people out there when I say that. But it is. It's functionally monopoly money. Yay! Well, that recording ended off swiftly. Uh, but as I was talking, uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to split two different parts of audio here. But um, what I was speaking on is that these banks and these institutions, especially after the end of the Second World War, they understood holistically and completely that the ability of fiat was not to move infrastructures or communities. They were all in preparation of full-out war. For 50 years nearly. The entire Western world was prepared for an all-out conflict with a body of government in the Soviet Union that was nowhere near capable of producing a war of great epic proportions. You could argue up to the Cuban Missile Crisis that the Soviet Union was still a threat to the Western world. And I will say you respect, and I will tell you respectfully that you are wrong. They weren't prepared for war. The banks were. The banks had filled up their coffers and ledgers. They had filled up their ability to finally punch their ticket in. We have new weapons, new capabilities, new armored vehicles, new jets. And instead, they went to Vietnam, 
wasted 200,000 lives of U.S. citizens, wasted the lives of many families, many people went homeless, many people left the United States simply abandoning their life. You had people across the globe essentially abandoning their lives because they didn't want to join in this cause. You killed millions of Vietnamese on top of that many Chinese. And then it became a political war. It didn't become a war of we are here to win. Because really that's the game of war, right? It's not to, you know, play it for three years and then quit. That's not how game theory works, right? And game theory is how all governments react. And so what you see in this time period is the central banks are then ripping up their establishment yields, throwing it all into bonds, throwing it into the stock market, and their answer after the Vietnam War was, you know, the United States federal government imperial machine, we aren't comfortable in a war. We are comfortable with screwing, guess this, the working class, the middle class. Because they are the easiest to go after. Because all of them, and just hear me out here, all of them own small bits of land. They might own a business. They don't really have a ton of capital that isn't totally attainable. Right, there's ways to chip them slowly over time. Because really, the threat to the upper class is the middle class. Because if the middle class is completely and utterly accessible in terms of their ability to create wealth, then... I mean, essentially, at this time, and this is really speaking from the 70s on into the 80s, that if you have an attainable wealth that you can survive on, if you sold out all of your assets, and if you could survive on that for 20 years with you and the rest of your family, then... You're probably existing at that point in the middle class, right? The difference between that and someone who is very mega wealthy or rich is if they sold all of their attainable assets, the banks would then come to them and be like, what the hell, right? We need this money too, right? It's their version of staking. It's their version of decentralized finance because really at this time period, these banks in and of itself relied on the rich. Because the government itself was not really engaged in the praxis of wanting to create war. They didn't want it, right? The federal government had already lost, the West had lost every conflict from World War, or really from North the, the Korean War, to even the latest endeavor to Afghanistan. And, you know, you could talk to a lot of war vets, especially now. Not many of them believe that we won or even made a dent or even made a attribution of a positive impact in Afghanistan or in Iraq. And so this comes back to this whole point that Fiat currency itself and the central banks became tandem in their ability to generate the war machine and to, in fact, create dually methods that could sustain their efforts. And here's the thing. The banks do have a say. The government, in some essence, has a say. But it was the military that had the ultimate power because they had a unit of time and space to freely move themselves across 
the global world. They could set up shop in Indonesia, in the Pacific Ocean, in the Atlantic, in the North Sea, in the Indian Ocean, anywhere. Mexico, South America, anywhere in Argentina, operations in Antarctica, in the Arctic Circle. They had them. They, had, they could literally be anywhere. They have more global reach than Walmart, Amazon, and the central banks combined. They were prepared in every single moment to do whatever they wanted. If the United States federal government decided today that they wanted to invade North Korea, they could. Ten days ago, they could. Last year, they could. Ten years ago, they could. Twenty years ago, they could. And their decision wasn't based on, ah, oh, shit, are we going to lose a lot of lives in this battle? Fuck no, that was not the decision. It wasn't a decision of, oh, North Korea has nuclear weapons. Or, oh, we don't want to waste these amount of lives. Or, oh, this might cost too much, too much money, right? What these banks knew is that they had created a problem. That the working class was extremely fragile. That their constant want of creating division and conflicted pressure on the working class would allow for the working class to be completely dependent on the service industry. Manufacturing jobs left. They completely abandoned the United States and the West. Because the West was no longer about wanting to create a war machine. Now the government was. They were more than happy to give, you know, billions to Lockheed Martin. And really Lockheed Martin has gotten well over a trillion dollars in assets, essentially, from the federal government. And they decided at that point, you know, war necessarily wasn't what that they were interested at that point. And who knows, they might be interested in it now. Because the tangibility of the fiat is dying, right? It's dying before their eyes. And when Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley looked at what the banks in their inner circle of hell were saying to everybody. I mean, the other banks were saying, ETFs, bonds, common stocks, for this reaction to the crypto market. They simply wanted to create more speculation on Wall Street rather than investing in the grassroots movement. Because they decided it was the only strategy. And you see, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley kind of admitted the feeling of this inner circle of hell. They admitted, quite simply, they feel like they're losing for once in their 200, 300 year history of dominating the entirety of unit conversion in space and time. They feel like for once in their life, they are behind. Because they have never seen in their lifetimes, and really in the lifetimes of their forefathers and of their families, they have never seen a product of any kind rise through the coffers and not be named some country or not be named some company. Because Bitcoin is neither, right? You could call it a product, and I mean, I sometimes say that too, but it's not. It doesn't function as a product. It functions as a conversion to energy production, i.e. the in-theory practice of your favorite dollar. And in truth, the one thing that I think most maximalists don't want to admit to, and I've seen a lot of this out there, is, I mean, yes... 
the banks are very complicit in fraud. They're very complicit in their role in the war on drugs. They're complicit to the military-industrial complex. All of those things are obvious, guys. Those things are completely documentable. All of those things you can completely do research on and probably go down a rabbit hole. But the thing is, is why? Why are we so willing to go down this rabbit hole than finally admitting that, hey, we're winning. It's time to really push the gas pedal now. Because here's the thing. Our governments, you know what their professionals at? And this is an attribution to my father. They love kicking the can down the road. Because for them, it's so much easier to kick the can down the road to make people forget because years have passed, months have passed, and people forget. There's a new election, there's something else going on, a new product is released, a new social media app, there's a new phone that got released, a new TV, a new game console, a new uh, laptop, a new operating system, a new processor, a new graphics card, a new uh, VR headset capability, new headphones, uh, new ways of constructing homes, new engineering projects, new infrastructure, all of that. New economy. But this isn't about creating a new economy. This is about breaking the camel's back, breaking the back of the fiat currency production that has entrenched damn near a slavery scope on the entirety of the world. China enslaves every single embodied citizen in their country. Down to how they spend, down to how they live, down to what they do and where they go. And the thing is, is that the United States has fully admitted that that was a direction that they were willing to go. They partnered with tech giants to create those capabilities. And then they took them and sold them to the Chinese. In fact, helped them. Perfect their methods. If it wasn't for Edward Stone, we would have never realized that. We would have never discovered that the federal government would pass court orders off the books of the judicial system, off the books of the public eye, off the books of every single governing body. To not only spy on U.S. citizens, but to spy on people globally. They knew that they were literally a half step away from creating the ultimate panopticon prison. If you don't know what that means, it's a Michel Foucault um, term that he, in essence believed that we all live in a prison by a watchtower in which the watchtower has an all-seeing eye on all of us and that we always see it but we exist in this prison and accept the state that we are in and I've I've been in the United States now for over 20 years you know I've I've seen how this country itself has changed. I mean, I went from living in one of the poorest communities in the United States to living out in the countryside and seeing the duality of industrialization and poverty and of richness. And it is as if no one understands the amount of freedom they've lost and no one seems to understand that it's not getting better. And Bitcoin didn't aspect as an answer. In fact, it's doesn't it's not a perfect mechanism. I kind of want to push that to maximalists as well. It's not perfect. It's not the best message, but you know, I think that 
the message that I like to attribute to Bitcoin most. It's the same thing that I think most of the crypto market will stand for at some point. And I think it's the overall message that most whales have now because they're not leaving. They're not leaving the crypto market. They're not going to the stock market. They're not going to real estate either. They're not going into business. If anything, they are waiting for the moment where they can create nodes to fundamentally change the economy so that these businesses that so fundamentally relied on the fiat exchanges and the fiat collusion and production that not only the federal government and the banks were complicit in, these whales are looking to completely bring down their system. And Bitcoin itself, you know, there's billions of it at some point there's going to be hundreds of billions um that as satoshi put it will be free money for people out there and you know who knows what will become of this asset because i don't think many people do know i don't think anybody has a definitive answer for what the economy will look like in 10 years. And this is just my belief. And this gets back to our kind of a root cause arguments of Bitcoin. I think in 10 years. You'll have. No necessary. Federal government ledger. In fact it will be liquidated. Down to student loans. Down to the debts that are owed to other countries to the military industrial complex, to hospitals, to infrastructure projects, all of it. It will have to be liquidated because the dollar will be worthless. They can't transfer it to bonds. They can't yield them out for 30 years. Because I think at that point, the government's going to really ask itself, if we don't make this change now, we will fundamentally collapse. And... Bitcoin has in itself the power to alienate itself from governing bodies. In fact, creating a market that supersedes the ledgers of the West, of the free world, even seeing it in places such as Venezuela or Myanmar. People finally have a chance for once in the entirety of human history to tell your governments, to tell your governing states to simply input, you have a chance to tell them to go fuck themselves. Because if they don't buy in, other people will. I mean, shit, Morgan Stanley, I, if I remember, it was either Goldman or Morgan Stanley said, we'll put 1% of our ledger into the actual backing and leveraging of Bitcoin. So they essentially told people, yeah, we'll buy Bitcoin. But they, they've quite literally betted that it won't take off. That's, that's their message. But the thing that I don't... I think that they are underestimating the power that is flowing into the crypto market. I think mass adoption of Bitcoin is only a couple years away. I think hyper-Bitcoinization happens at the point when the market plateaus in terms of infrastructure for disseminating Bitcoin. And then from that point on, it is going to simply be all the people that see the amount of infrastructure that has gone up, then how do we move on from there? Bitcoin is not an answer. There will eventually be a new form of production that supersedes its maker. And, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto may never come to light. They may never try to reveal themselves. They believe in the the 
anonymous capabilities of the ledger. And that while anonymous, it has, you know, open access viewing. And that should be good enough. And, you know, it is about what does the government get out of it? That's their view. And I do believe there will come a day when Bitcoin itself is the most reachable asset in the entire planet. In that it can lift people out of poverty. Especially now. I think if you invested in Bitcoin right now and you have only a thousand dollars to invest in anything... I don't think you should put it in the stock market because that's what the banks are using to fundamentally kill grassroots movements in those areas. They know that they have way too much power in the stock market. And in in that essence, I don't think they should be able to carry outstanding shares. That's my, my opinion. Um, I think that Exchanges should become more decentralized in their capabilities of the entirety of the stock market. And that's an SEC thing. It's not really, you know, anything the market can change. But what I, I, I fundamentally do believe that crypto itself is, it's on the cutting edge, man. It is on the edge of glory. And a lot of people out there are going to miss that boat. A lot of people with a lot of money are going to miss that boat. And really the answer at this point, if you are not interested in investing in Bitcoin, if you still to this day believe that the speculation is what holds you back, I get that. I am with you. But I will also say this. If you really think what's holding you back is some pseudonymous reports about um, the amount of energy it takes to mine Bitcoin or the issues of scaling and volatility, then you don't truly understand the long-term goal. Right? We could see the long-term goal of the federal government. We could see the long-term goal of Facebook. We could see the long-term goal of Walmart, Amazon, all of them. With Bitcoin, it's so, so, so unclear that when you really sit down and think about, well, what if one day fiat currency has no power? And it's just something that is legible in the cloud that is nothing more than an energy production unit that could potentially allow people to create more existence within their space. I think that simply tells you that the dollar itself is an asset that's no longer attainable in creating a future for people. And I think that there's so many applications. I mean, if you allowed the ability for blockchain technology to take over every market imaginable down to, you know, electronics to the veterinary industry. If you allowed people to invest in those markets in a fair game, game over for the stock market. That $100 trillion plus that's in that market right now will fall overnight. Because I can tell you that grassroots movement Investors in the over-the-counter markets as well as in the ETFs, they're tired, you know, of the last couple years of these, you know, almost controlling aspects of the Federal Reserve and the SEC. They have, in fact, consolidated so much power now that it seems like Groups and movements of people cannot create real debts in the stock market. No matter how much money flowed into these markets, too. It's that the exchanges and the banks 
they had more foresight, more communicative skills within the market, more abilities in terms of changing it, that the shorts and bears would just always win. Especially those that held the shares. And they held them at ridiculously cheap prices. And I don't I don't want to say this in a fatalist term. That if you're in the stock market right now, you know, good luck to you. I, I, I'm with you. You know, I think that America itself deserved better than this. In fact, much of the Western world did. You know, it, it relied on imperiled freedoms that were shared between common people at a time when tyrannical pressure was maximized. Killing people simply for their beliefs. And murdering families simply because they were poor. And we fundamentally changed the narratives and foundations and terms and definitions of the entire market. All simply through the trust of an illusion. And that's why Bitcoin itself, it's a conspiracy of a conspiracy. In essence, the banks conspired against the working class because it was the easiest target. And then the working class said, watch what we can do. They used the tools that the government's top security advisors created. They manipulated them, changed them into an aspect of their own. And deliberated, deliberated a market that, in theory, will perform on epic proportions to not only rip down the central banking system, but obsolete the Federal Reserve. That's the future. The nodes and blockchain technology will be the new way in which we engage in the market. And here's the thing. There's going to be a lot of people who are in it, who have a lot of money, that will be watched like hawks by the government. I can imagine right now, they have created ledgers and capabilities to track every single wallet transaction on the Bitcoin ledger. They They probably also do so with the Ethereum scan they probably do so with every other coin they're trying as hard as they can to catch people that have been essentially running away from the governments for years that's my dog she likes to bark (laughs) but in essence ladies and gentlemen I'm not going to tell you to buy Bitcoin. I'm not going to tell you to invest in crypto. I'm not even going to tell you that you should invest in a stock or anything. I just think people, more people out there need to be aware of the weight and gravity of the situation now incoming to the entire global economy. I think black swans are about to raise their wings and they're ready for a bubble that will, in essence completely rip apart the normative narratives of how we engage with the economy. And what that means is a lot of poor people are about to be very poor. Because inflation will either teeter out of existence or it will have to adhere to a new economy. Or we may see governments create a conflict in which it's going to take a lot more than just Bitcoin to win. Because in the end, that's what it's about. It's not about the money, it's about sending a message. Heath Ledger's Joker said that in the dark night, and that always sat with me as a kid. And now, looking at the crypto market and Bitcoin and blockchain technology, you know, I, I, I really see that now. That... You know, we can't sit here and talk about 
you know, Bitcoin's X value next week because that's redundant. It doesn't get us anywhere closer to figuring out the answers. Money is not the answer. It's not a solution. It's not a way of life. If that's how you gauge your way in life, you know, I've all the power to you. But the only way the free world gets a chance at freedom is if they understand the message and if they understand the movement. And, you know, I've, I've tried convincing a lot of people out there about this, especially a lot of older folks. And, you know, a lot of them are stuck in their way. They're not going to back away from the, the central banks. They're not going to back away from the stock market. You know, because they, they fundamentally believe that those markets are, you know, sound. They won't break. That's their view. And I just don't, I just don't see that being the case. I really do think that in the next couple of years, you're going to see a huge market shift. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today is April 15th. Luka Doncic hit an amazing three last night. I'm probably going to watch it over and over again, not think about crypto. But uh, this is my second episode, and obviously this can be one of many more to come. I'm trying to be more regular about when I post these podcasts, and I fully apologize for uh, not doing so sooner. Uh you know, a lot of things are going on in my life. A lot of things are going on in the lives of many other people. And uh, finding time just to sit down and talk or sit down and just think out a process is, you know, I think it's becoming harder for people. I know it's becoming harder for even me. Um, you know, less than a month ago, I was in an internship that was supposed to last six months. So the, the chief executive officer thought it was only three and let me go anyway. And uh, the global economy has not gotten better. I think even the domestic markets themselves haven't. They haven't recovered. I think there's a lot of smokescreen going on right now. I think that there's a lot of capping. Uh, that's the term a lot of you trappers out there will understand. And the only thing I can say to all of you is be vigilant. Be, be think greater than... The government's ability to think. Be strong in your values. And. End in your beliefs. And I'll close out in saying this. The more you look. Into the soul. The more you look into. The fabric of the universe. The more you understand that. The only way that we will make it out of this pressure is if we remain vigilant, diligent, respectful, and empathetic. Because we all come from different creeds, different backgrounds, different belief systems. But we're all trying to find the same goal. And this could be very well it. And I think that that's the seriousness that we have to bring it to. Because even if it isn't, even if this market collapsed tomorrow, there was at least a point in time when we did fundamentally believe that we could literally put wealth in the hands of many more people than the central banks and the federal government could. And that's a powerful message. Thank you for listening to the Finance of the Dawn podcast. It is always awesome to have more viewers and more eyes on the podcast. And I cannot thank you enough. I am still looking for a cover art artist for the podcast. And if you ever have questions, feel free to ask on Anchor. Um, I will be free to add your questions to the podcast um, and answer them for you. I can answer your Mavericks questions. I can answer your crypto questions. I can answer any of your theoretical or objective questions. Um, 
anything to make this more fun for all of us, you know. And uh, all I can say is thank you for listening. Uh, please support and share. Um, you could find me on Spotify, Google Podcasts. I believe you can find me on Apple Podcasts, also Anchor. Um, there's probably another uh, podcast application that I'm not thinking of at the moment. But um, thank you for your support. Without you, this podcast would not continue. Hopefully, we'll be able to get into a schedule of releasing more podcasts on a regular schedule in the future. Um, and as always, thank you for listening to the Finance the Dawn podcast and finance the fucking dawn.